Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. We are in Matthew's Gospel today, uh, starting in chapter 26. So if you'll be turning there, we'll read uh, multiple verses in a few moments. And I would ask that you keep your Bibles open because we are going to read a number of passages today. In the midst of this pandemic, I have set a ministry record. Of course, it is nothing for me to brag about because I do not have much control over any of this. Nor does it mean that this has been the most successful year of my ministry. Nor does it mean that I hope to break this record next year that I've just set this year. In fact, it is a record that is not even close. I don't know what the second best year for this particular item is in my ministry, but I know this year far exceeds any other year I've had, and I've got another month to go. So what ministry record of mine have I set? I have done more funerals this year than any other year. Having taken part in 18 funerals so far, and sadly, I will add to that total this week. Well, you say that's rather morbid, a poor way to start a sermon, and a topic that we don't want to talk about at any point during the year, much less during this joyous time of Christmas. And yet, in a series on the crises that we face in life, doesn't this have to be included? Because it is something all of us fear to some degree or another, and it's something that all of us are going to face either with our own death or the death of a loved one, or more than likely, both. There is a country song that has this line in it expressing the universal nature of this crisis. It says at one point, no one is getting out of here alive. Now, we would add, unless Jesus comes back, but this is a country song, it's not a hymn. But it makes the point that all of us are going to face death. We've said for years in America that there are two things that are unavoidable, death and taxes. Now, people do sometimes cheat on their taxes to avoid them, but you cannot cheat on death. Now, I'm not primarily going to be talking about your death or mine, though the crisis we are examining this morning is certainly going to be applied there. This series on some of the major crises of the Bible would not be complete without addressing a crisis of death in the life of Jesus. In other words, we are going to be looking at that last week of his life, that week that takes up a vast majority of every single gospel. If you were to look at it, you would realize that the gospel narratives, or what we sometimes call the passion narratives, take up anywhere around a quarter or a third of each of the gospels, all talking about that last week of Jesus' life. Now, we've certainly looked at these events before. If you'll recall, we spent basically the whole year of 2019 going through the gospel of Mark, which means we looked exclusively or extensively at all of those issues. So today we're going to do an overview, a 30,000 
feet view of the passion narratives rather than ground level. And a case can certainly be made that this last week of Jesus' life is not just one crisis, but it is multiple crises that all come together to make this, without a doubt, the biggest crisis in history. And so we're going to start in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14. And again, we're going to look at a different passage of Scripture for each point. All of these will be in Matthew, so you won't have to turn very far. And so keep your Bibles open. We start with the betrayal, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. We begin with this betrayal, and as you know, this comes not from an enemy of Jesus, nor even from the religious leaders whom we know were often at odds with Jesus. This is an inside job, the worst kind of betrayal. It simply says in this text, he was one of the twelve. One of the ones whom Jesus had personally chosen to be part of his life and ministry. One of the twelve with whom Jesus and the other disciples had repeatedly ministered and eaten together with. Most of us can remember an experience in our own lives where we have faced some type of betrayal. Maybe it was as simple as a secret that you told someone that they assured you they would never tell anyone else only to go and tell virtually everyone else. Or a friend who vanished from your life when they discovered another group of friends that they found to be more interesting than you. Maybe it was a business partner who left you on the hook financially and you're still paying off the debts that he or she helped get you into. Perhaps it's the betrayal of a spouse through an extramarital affair and or divorce. In ministry, sometimes it's a, it's a faithful family deciding that they're going to leave the church and go somewhere else. Invariably, they will come to me or someone else and they will say, I want you to understand this is not personal. We just believe that this other church has better programs and better opportunities for our family. But I want you to know it always seems personal and therefore it is very hard to take it. So we all know the pain of some type of betrayal. And yet none of these scenarios remotely compares to what we find here. Those who betray us are not doing so during life and death circumstances. No one is turning us over to the mob or some type of gang to be killed. But Judas, a man whose name is synonymous with betraying, all these years later, we still use the name Judas as a synonym for a traitor. And no one, or I guess I should say virtually no one, I'm sure there are exceptions, but who would name their kid Judas? People just don't do that, all because of this incident so many years ago. Now, we are never explicitly told his motives behind the action. We do know, of course, that he was the treasurer of the group, and he was not always honest in his dealings. He certainly does ask for financial compensation for his act, but 30 pieces of silver is not going to make him rich. The book of Exodus tells us that 30 pieces of silver is the price to be paid to uh, an owner if an ox gores or kills one of his slaves. 
So this is the price of a servant. I have no doubt that there was some disillusionment in his mind as well. Disillusionment with how Jesus was going about his ministry. Disillusionment about what kind of power and prestige or lack thereof he and the other disciples could expect in the days to come. Perhaps at this point, he is looking back over these three years, and in hindsight, he has determined that he has wasted these years of ministry because it is not turning out like he had hoped and dreamed it would, and therefore, he wants a way out. And he finds that way out by making a deal with the devil to betray Jesus with a kiss of friendship, which will lead to this crisis of death. It also, of course, results in a crisis of death in the life of Judas. Evidently, he is remorseful and regrets his actions, returning the money and hanging himself, but all of that is too little too late. The wheels of death are already in motion, and the enemies of Jesus with whom Judas has bargained will not stop until Jesus is dead. And so we move to point number two from the betrayal. We turn our attention to the garden where this betrayal will take place, though that will not be our focus. We're still in the 26th chapter. Look at verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here we see the garden scene. And again, we're not going to take the time this morning to look at the uh, results of the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus and all of that. But what we do see is the sorrow of Jesus and the apathy, if we want to call it that, of his three closest disciples. He has left the larger group in one spot. He has gone a little further with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and then he has asked them to stay in a specific spot and watch with him. Later it says watch and pray, and then Jesus has gone a little further. All along this journey towards the cross, we are going to see time and time again that Jesus is left alone to face the crisis. And that's something we're learning throughout this pandemic, how devastating it is to face some of life's difficulties alone. Whether it's in a hospital or an assisted living facility where no one is allowed to visit or simply at home where people do not come in and out as they once did, we are learning how difficult it is to be by ourselves during times of crisis. And Jesus is going to face that repeatedly because these three close disciples of his who have been left a little ways away, who perhaps can hear Jesus praying because it was customary to pray out loud and they are not too far away from him and yet they cannot stay engaged for even an hour. Jesus is asking and expecting them to join in this spiritual battle that he is involved in, but they are unwilling or unable, and they keep falling asleep. Now, I realize that we could insert some conjecture here. Perhaps there's been too many late nights of ministry, and these guys are, are simply exhausted. Perhaps the anxiety and the stress of all that's going on in Jerusalem during this last week concerning the one that they have hitched to and followed has led to their inability now to stay awake. 
We could add any number of other things, but here is the point. These men had just recently proclaimed their allegiance to Jesus, even to the point of death. Peter, ever the spokesman, had declared that he would rather die than deny Jesus, and all of the disciples had said the exact same thing. We would rather die than deny you, and just a few moments later, they can't even stay awake for an hour of prayer for the sake of their Savior, Jesus, who is in his most desperate times. At the very least, the adrenaline of what was going on should have kept them alert, but it does not. Instead, Jesus is left alone in his sorrow. But what is this sorrow all about? It says very clearly that he was heavy with sorrow, but sorrow over what? That he's about to die? Something that he had predicted to his disciples multiple times? Is he sorrowful because of the separation he is about to experience from these 11 guys whom he had spent three years of ministry with? Is he sorrowful for them because he knows what they're going to face without him being there personally with them? Well, in this case, we do not have to conjecture because his prayer tells us what he is sorrowful over. It tells us very clearly when it says, Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. So it is the cup that is causing him such sorrow. You say, but what does that mean? The, cu the cup must clearly be symbolic. Jesus is nowhere close to talking here about some sort of drink. So the cup in the New Testament is often a symbol of divine wrath against sin. So Jesus is filled with sorrow because he knows he's about to experience the wrath of his Father against sin. And remember that in a moment when we get to that point in the story where we hear that haunting cry from the cross, he who knew no sin is about to experience the weight of sin on our behalf. And even before he experiences it, it is crushing him. And that is why this must represent the greatest crisis in human history. A crisis of such magnitude that our attempts to describe it or even understand it simply do not do it justice. For the sinless Son of God to take on our sin, bearing our punishment, and experiencing the wrath of God in our place is simply too deep for our minds to properly handle. But of course, he was willing, ending the prayer with a commitment to do the will of his Father rather than a desire to avoid the pain. And this is not a mere formula like we often tack onto our prayers. I mean, at the end of our prayers, we often say, well, whatever your will is in some way. But then when we don't get what we want and we get mad at God because we didn't get what we want, it shows that our will was more important all along. But that is not the case with Jesus here. This is a genuine expression. He is not trying to sidestep the appointed duty or destiny that he had come for. He was simply honestly feeling the weight of what was soon to transpire. So we've been in the betrayal with Judas. We've been to the garden with the sorrow that is felt there, and we move forward now to verse 56 of the same chapter and see the denial of Peter and others. Verse 56, but all of this took place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. Drop down to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard 
And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I read verse 56 to let you see that it was not just Peter that forsakes Jesus. It was all of the disciples. This hand-selected group of 12 men are going to produce one betrayer and 11 deniers because they all forsake him at this moment of crisis in his life and flee, leaving Jesus to face another element of this crisis alone. I mentioned to you earlier that facing times of crisis alone has been equally hard or especially hard during this year. Patients are not allowed to have family visit in the hospital until the patient is tested negative for COVID. And then the current policy in our city is that only one visitor is allowed. One visitor for the duration of the time, not one visitor at a time, but one visitor for the duration of their stay. And that visitor has to be the same person, which means it's hard on that person to be the one that can be there. And it's hard on the rest of the family who are not able to be there especially when these illnesses are very extreme and the sickness is serious and it is often at the late stages of life. I've only been in the hospital once in my life, staying two nights for double pneumonia many years ago prior to to coming here. Of course, our kids were small at the time, so Tracy would sit with me at the hospital for those two days during the day. After she'd dropped the kids off at school in the morning, she would come sit with me, and then she would leave to pick them up in the early afternoon and then stay home with them at night. As a pastor of a church, of course, I was going to have many visitors come by, you would expect, right? Didn't happen that way. A lot of them assumed that a lot of other people were visiting and didn't want to overload me with many visitors, so... I basically didn't get any visitors. And I know we have a couple of our former uh, church members listening, so watching. So that's you I'm talking about. (laughs) And so we joked. I joked with Tracy that the second shift at the hospital didn't think I had any friends. Because after 3 o'clock, no one ever came by. No one ever stopped by to visit me. Maybe I didn't have any friends. Maybe Maybe that was right. I don't know. But it's lonely sometimes when you're in the midst of a crisis and you're there all alone. Jesus is now forsaken by the men who just recently professed their commitment to, re- to die rather than deny him. And remember that these denials do not take place before kings nor officials. These are not denials that are given before soldiers or temple police, all of which had the power to act and to arrest and to persecute. These denials took place twice before servant girls who each approached Peter and accused him of being with Jesus. And then the third denial is before simply the bystanders, unnamed bystanders. My point being that these were not powerful and influential people. 
A servant girl would have been on the very lowest rung of the social ladder in that particular day, and yet Peter denies knowing Jesus even to these nobodies in society. He wouldn't even admit being part of the group of disciples out of fear of persecution and death, which he's already said he would rather face than denying Jesus. Matthew has Peter remembering the words of Jesus after this third denial and leaving to weep bitterly. Luke is more specific. Luke says that Jesus actually made eye contact with Peter. And it's a word that, that speaks of a deep eye contact. Perhaps even Jesus is, is in the courtyard already being beaten. We don't know that for certain, but it certainly intensifies this if that were the case. But Luke says they made eye contact. And when Jesus looked into the eyes of Peter, Peter remembered these words. And he went out and wept bitterly. Well, we won't spend a lot of time on the next one, but we move to chapter 27, verses 1 through 2, and we see the trials. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, we realize in our judicial system that there are problems. It is not always fair. People do not always get the right verdict. And sometimes verdicts can be bought with good lawyers. But as part of justice, we expect a fair trial from a jury of our peers, people who we believe will impartially hear the evidence and render a verdict that they believe to be a just verdict. All of which is a far cry from what Jesus received. His was a mockery of justice. With a verdict already sealed before the case was even heard, an outcome predetermined by men who would stop at nothing to see him dead. There were, of course, two sets of trials. There was a religious set of trials and a secular set. The religious being ruled by the, the Jewish authorities and the secular being ruled by the Romans, and the Romans were the only ones who had the power to issue capital punishment. Pilate is the Roman official. We mentioned him last week as being the man who in AD 6 replaced Herod the Great's son as the ruler over Judea. He did not have a personal beef with Jesus, but he did have a desire to maintain order so that he could continue to reign and rule. And so he he has this ceremony where he washes his hands and says, I'm not responsible. May his blood be on your hands, as if that can get him off the hook. But he bowed to public pressure and sentenced a man to death that he himself had already declared he had found no fault in. And so from here we move to the crucifixion, verses 45 and following in chapter 27. Matthew 27, verse 45 now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
This, of course, is the central component of the crisis of death, the crucifixion. Death itself is bad enough, but crucifixion as a mode of death is far more gruesome and painful. And I'm not going to take the time this morning, as we have done at other times, to describe the emotional and physical pain that would have gone on as part of this death. Instead, as you can see from the verses I have selected, I'm, I'm focusing on that moment where he cries out about being forsaken by God. This is a quote from Psalm 22. And from that, some try to lessen the force of this statement. How can God forsake his own son? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 22, and because that psalm ends in victory and triumph, some say, well, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting the first verse of the psalm as a way of getting to the entire context of the psalm, which he would have known, and therefore it's really a cry of victory. And while I do acknowledge that this does come from Psalm 22 and from verse 1, and that Jesus would have known the entire context of the psalm, I think we have to be very careful not to lessen the crisis here that he is going through. A crisis which climaxes here with separation from his father. A separation that this relationship had never known because this is an eternal relationship. So this is the moment I referenced earlier, the moment that Jesus had been so sorrowful about in the garden. That moment when the weight of sin and the wrath of God is fully being poured out upon the sinless sacrifice. We've been forsaken by others. We acknowledged that earlier. But we've never been forsaken by God. In fact, one of the greatest promises for us is that we never will be. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet that is exactly what Jesus is going through here, being forsaken by his Father. Now again, I realize that this is not the typical way to start the Christmas season in church. We much prefer the, the manger scene, even when we recognize that it might have been smelly and dirty. That's still much better than the pain of the cross. We like the joy of a new birth far more than we like the hospice room where someone lies dying. And so we prefer the Christmas story remain the Christmas story. Keep the baby in the manger. We can talk about the cross when springtime comes and when Easter is upon us. So let me do that for a moment. Let me remind you of the Christmas story that you like and perhaps would prefer I was talking about this morning. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Do not fear to take Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. But why did the angel tell Joseph what to name the child? And why the name Jesus? Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua, both of which mean the Lord is salvation. And here again, we do not have to conjecture as to why the baby is named Jesus, for the angel says it in the very next statement. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that is what we are seeing Jesus do on the cross this morning. The very thing he came to do, 
The purpose of his birth, the purpose of the incarnation was so that he might come and die and reconcile us, bringing us justification and reconciliation with God. So without the cross, there is no Christmas. We just have a birth, and there have been millions of births throughout history. But this birth, but this birth was unique. Not just because of the virgin conception, but because of his purpose, the purpose of his death on our behalf. But as you know, the death is not the end of the story. So one more section, chapter 28, beginning in verse 5. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Throughout this series, we've tried to look not just at the crisis that we're dealing with, but ultimately the deliverance. Because we said at the very outset that our goal, or at least one of our goals, was to see how God delivered his people in the past so that we could trust that he would deliver us in our times of crisis in the present. And since I've already acknowledged that the passion narrative, all of these elements that we've looked at, and much more, combined to form the greatest crisis in human history, we would expect to discover the greatest deliverance in history as well. And so we do. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, delivering all of his people from a similar fate. Now again, you know the basics of the story. Every Easter we look at some aspect of the resurrection. And I'll say the same thing I said earlier in a different way. If there is no Easter, there is no Christmas. I mean, I know we like to separate these two holidays and, and talk about different things, but they come together. They must come together. If there is no Easter, there is no Christmas. If Christ does not rise from the dead, as he predicted multiple times, then he is a false prophet to be dismissed. But because he does rise from the dead, everything in our faith and future changes. Not only have, has, he, has his death atoned for our sins, but in the process, he has conquered death. Now, we are all aware that that does not mean that we will not die. I'm not trying to say that we will not now face a crisis of death in our own life. But it does mean that death is not the end. The sting of death has been removed so that rightly understood, it is not the crisis it once was. It is a conquered enemy that we no, no longer need to fear because Christ has overcome death. Those of us who trust him can do likewise. And thus we face the crisis with faith, faith in the promises for our future. And that's not saying that it's going to be easy. Death is still an enemy that we dread. It still is a crisis in any family that faces it which is why we must be consistently and constantly reminded of what Christ has done for us. But for the believer, this crisis of death in our own lives comes with promises for our future through the one who conquered death. Promises that we believe and live out by faith that death is not the end, but rather it is the transition to the eternal state, the state for which we were created and in which we will be in the presence of God forever. So death is a conquered crisis. One that we, yes, will still have to go through unless Christ comes. A crisis, nonetheless, 
but a conquered one that leads us into joy eternal. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year when we celebrate your birth, but I do pray that we would not do it with sentimentality about a a new baby coming into a family. As true as that is, I pray that we would see the purpose behind it all. The purpose is what we've examined this morning, that you are going to face a crisis of death, bearing our sin and being separated from the Father so that we might be forgiven and reconciled and spend eternity with you. And so in the midst of our Christmas celebration, I pray that we would be reminded that it's about salvation. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.